Here we go. Okay. Back away. Okay. We good? You ready to start, Jenica? Yeah. Go right ahead. Okay. We're recording. Okay. This is welcome to episode 15 of the Manifesto. I'm your host, Logan. Today, my guest is Jenica Edwin, MP for Frankton. Hi, Jenica. Hey, Logan. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on. So, my first question is, is a big one. 2019, <laughs> you were elected as a Green. You were mm-hmm. the first Green elected outside of British Columbia. Mm-hmm. It was, people said it was a big moment for progressivism in Atlantic Canada. However, you switched parties in 2021. Can you talk about that party switch? Um, I sure can. So as you might expect, I get that question quite a lot. (laughs) Um, And so, I mean, really what it comes down to is just how much the world changed uh, after 2019. Um, So, you know, I kind of got my my legs underneath me. I had five months of normal parliament and then, uh, you know, COVID-19 pandemic began. Um, which, of course, changed a lot of things, just as far as even how I operate as a member of parliament, um, but also just the urgency of so many of the issues uh, that, that our community faces, that Canada faces. Um, I think about the healthcare care crisis kind of compounded as well. I think about uh, the, the climate crisis, which has always been uh, my top priority to address, seems to be even more accelerated in the last couple of days or couple of years. And, uh, you know, I just felt like that urgency required me to make a very bold decision um, to leave the Green Party because there was a lot of internal issues, a lot of things that were very distracting for me. um, And I have a job to do, a really important job, especially at a time when we're facing so many challenges. So I, uh, as I said, it was one of the toughest decisions I've ever had to make in my life. Um, You know, months and months of thought went into it. um, And ultimately, I made the decision back in, in 2021 and uh, it's, it's been great, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I really love my new team. I love having a larger group of people to draw from um, so that their experience, their advice, um, and I'm, I'm, you know, politics is a team sport. So it's been great to have, as I said, those others to kind of pull from. Um, and yeah, again, having access to the government itself, to the cabinet, to the prime minister, I really feel I can deliver more on those green principles. Um, so bringing that into the Liberal Party um, with the idea, again, of that we're, we're just facing so many issues right now that, you know, I, I could have stayed perhaps with the Green Party and, and, and tried my, my best to maybe progress through the ranks, perhaps leader one day. Um, but I decided that I'm going to try to do that with the governing party because, again, there's a time crunch right now for addressing these, these major issues. The further on to that question, what did the people of Fredericton think when you switched parties to the Liberals? Because they did elect you as a Green. What were their mm-hmm. thoughts and opinions on the switch? Well, so a few things just for context as well. There was a looming election. So that's something that a lot of people need yeah. to take into consideration as far as how it was done. So I get a lot of feedback that many folks, you know, understood why I decided to leave the Green Party, but then they thought I should have sat as an independent for a little while. Uh, And for me, again, it's about delivering. I would be able to do even less as an independent than I was able to do as a Green Party member. Um, So that was not an option for me. Um, And as far as, you know, again, the the response. um, So certainly there were so many incredible dedicated Greens in the Fredericton area, um, you know, because of David Kuhn's leadership in particular. Um, who were not happy uh, because, again, they, you know, was was a breakthrough. It was something that was was supposed to be kind of this 
you know, leading into perhaps more green seeds. Um, and, you know, again, sometimes our journeys take us in a different direction. And so that's really how I tried to explain it to so many of the folks who were who were upset by my decision. Um, but there wasn't a lot of time to discuss that with other people as well. It was very much a journey I had to go through um, alone in a lot of respects. Um, so I know others felt like they wanted to be there with me. They wanted to kind of discuss the ins and outs, but it just wasn't possible at the time. Um, and so since then, I've done a lot of work to reconnect with with a lot of those Greens that had just worked so hard on my 2019 campaign and been along for the journey to kind of, you know, mend the fences, build the bridges back up. And I really hope that the work that I've been doing since crossing the floor really speaks to uh, my commitment to those ongoing Green principles, but bringing them into the Liberal Party. And then again, the other side of that is, of course, the liberal voters of Fredericton. Um, they were excited, <laughs> I think, because, you know, it seemed to be um, kind of turning the tables on what happened in 2019 as far as knocking out an incumbent. So bringing it back to the kind of liberal side of things, but with the green side. So I feel it's actually a more accurate way to represent the voters of Fredericton. Um, and again, it just comes down to the work. Uh, so 2021 election was really about asking for that trust which was tough for some people, you know, again, seeing someone cross the floor, it can, it can compromise that trust. Um, but I think now after, again, over a year and a half to, to show them what I've been able to do, to do um, as far as delivering in our key areas of concern around mental health, for example, issues like domestic violence, conservation, um, I've been able to do so much more. Um, so I hope uh, that most of our, you know, our electorate is, is, is quite satisfied with the decision and they understand a little bit more why I had to do it. Going on elections, there has been speculation that there may be an election any time now. Do you think <laughs> that the prime minister will call an election before 2025? I really do not think that's going to happen. Okay. Uh, it's certainly not something that we're discussing as, 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 as a team internally. Um, I think there's always going to be speculation within a minority government that in elections around the corner. And of course, you know, we have the agreement with the NDP, the supply and confidence agreement until, until 2025, but anything could happen. Um, so I'm, I'm not naive to think that, you know, that 2025 uh, election promise is kind of, you know, set in stone. Um, but as far as the team goes and what we've been hearing internally, I do not think there will be an election anytime soon. And I don't think Canadians want that either. Um, even though, of course, there's, dissatisfaction there's lots of comments about how our, how things are going um but to plunge us into an election right now would not be the right thing to do we had an election what 16 months ago it seems far too soon for an election no matter who no matter if you approve of the prime minister or you don't <laughs> Go, i want to talk about um it does it does appear that the liberal support is dropping across the country and here in Atlantic canada what is what will the liberals do to keep the voters that they had in 2019 and 2021 and to gain people who didn't vote for them in the past two elections well, that's a really good question um i think what you're seeing right now uh, as far as the polls goes it's it's a it's following inflation it's following the affordability crisis it's following a lot of the things that are happening mm -hmm. um, internationally as well so it, it reflects kind of this uneasiness that i think canadians are feeling at the moment um, but I think ultimately, you know, when you have those conversations and you drill down with individuals on, on what's happening and on, on why they feel that way, um, we're kind of able to pull them back and to realize that, you know, it, it was good to have a liberal government at the helm during COVID-19, for example, um, during, you know, these international issues that we're seeing, say, with, with Ukraine and, and, and Russia. Um, so 
it's really about having those one-on-one conversations. So what my team is doing and what so many of my other Atlantic colleagues in particular, it's, it's getting back on the doors. It's getting on the phone. It's, it's, it's making that one-on-one contact to have those nuanced discussions to really peel back the layers to see why people are feeling the way they're feeling. Um, and we've been getting a really positive response. So I think in the Atlantic in particular, uh, you know, people want to see their elected officials. They want to see us, you know, at the events on the weekends. They want to see us around. Um, so we're, we're doing a lot to make sure that we're, we're delivering on that. Um, and again, the other piece is just making sure that we're addressing those major concerns, things like affordability. So there's been a lot of measures that have been very targeted that I've been careful not to actually increase the inflation while also trying to ease some of the pain around housing, for example, or that, that GST doubling of the tax credit. All these these little pieces that the finance department has been trying to do to really show Canadians we're there, but also with the understanding that there's only so much you can do without adding flames to the, or fuel to the fire. So, um, again, it's just communicating that. Um, I think sometimes two people tend to forget a lot of the good stuff that's happening because often, again, media, we know negativity and clickbait and all these things is what kind of drives people's interests more than anything. Um, but again, it's just about for our, us as members of parliament to speak to the results because I think there have been incredible results. I think that we've come so far as a country over the last eight years. Um, and, you know, again, I did run in opposition in 2019. I have been convinced on so many files um, that I was just really seeing it in a negative light and that getting in there and meeting the people who are doing the work it's been incredibly reassuring. So that's really our task is to reassure Canadians that we've got this, but also remind them it's time for us to pull together, um, that we need each other. Um, and that's really our message moving forward. You talked about the housing crisis. I, I think we can all, every, me and you and everyone listening to this can agree that there's a housing crisis across the whole country, no matter how mm-hmm. big or small the community is. Mm-hmm. Do the federal labels have any plans or solutions to fix the housing crisis? Well, so, I mean, I think it's it's important to acknowledge that the federal government um, has never stepped into housing until the liberal government really came along because it's it's predominantly a provincial issue. And, and, yeah. and I see also municipalities really taking the charge as well to address the issues. So finally, it's an all hands on deck uh, problem. So that's that's a good thing. Um, and I've seen in, incredible programs um, from, from the, the housing department or our housing minister. Um, here in Fredericton, for example, we've been able to benefit from, from programs that support, say, the, the wraparound services at the, the city motel uh, at, the, at the Oak Center. Uh, we have the 12 Neighbors, um, which is an incredible program um, which with tiny homes and that dignity piece. Um, and again, with the, the peer support and social enterprise. So... Um, we've had funding there. We're going to, it's going to be uh, another round as well. We've also been selected as, as the city streams for the rapid housing initiative here in Fredericton. Um, so I, I know it's a national problem, um, and but I have to focus hyper locally. And, and I've been working so hard to ensure that Fredericton is given the attention it deserves for this issue. Um, you know, again, it's about that continuum of care. So we've got shelters, but we also have, you know, peer supported living. We also have independent living with, with subsidized uh, rent. There's, there's all these pieces where, again, it's the municipality, the federal government and the provincial government working together. Um, and that's really what the, the, I would say that the federal liberals have been pushing towards is that, again, it has to be an all hands on deck issue that we all have to be kind of seized with this, especially as we want to reach our immigration targets, for example, especially as we want to ensure that we have enough nurses and doctors, we have to make sure there's somewhere where they can live. Um, so all of these are intertwined with all of, a lot of our other goals as well. But I really believe that, you know, housing has been front and center and we've had a significant amount of funding here in Fredericton in particular on that issue. Um, but as far as solving the crisis, um, I think it's a lot more 
complex and multifaceted. There's going to be no kind of silver bullet. Um, yeah. But addressing, again, affordability is a piece of it. Addressing addictions is a piece of it. Addressing undiagnosed uh, mental illness is a piece of it. Um, so there's there's a lot a lot of moving parts. Um, but I just, I'm, I'm, again, reassured, if I can use that word again, that finally it seems like it's everyone's top priority and not just something that we've kind of been yelling from the sidelines. So we're going to get there, um, you know, but it's, it's always important to get the feedback from our community to see just how well it's being received here in Fredericton. Earlier, you did briefly discuss the Russia-Ukraine war, which has been happening for almost a year now, which hard to believe it's almost been a year. There have been people who have called on the Trudeau government to send more aid, more resources and infantry and guns, tanks and so on. Do you think that we should continue to help fund Ukraine in the war against the Russians? Well, I mean, I think it's there's been a lot of opinions for sure. And we hear a lot from our constituents on this issue, um, as we should. You know, this should seize everyone's attention. Um, and really what the De Department of Defense and Minister Anon has been doing has been listening to what, uh, you know, the, the defense leaders have been saying they need to send over for, to listening to what uh, the leadership of Ukraine says they want. So there's always people saying we need to do more of this and more of this, but they're really responding to what they're being asked to do, which I think is important. Um, I think for all of us, you know, when we need to support democracy uh, in, in the world order, I think this is a big part of it. Um, I think we also need to be careful about what it looks like for us to get involved in a conflict. Um, you know, Canadians, we used to to love our kind of identity as being peacekeepers. Um, mm -hmm. This is entering a bit of a different territory for us. Um, so it's it's precarious. It's a precarious situation. Um, I think certainly our role is to welcome as many Ukrainians as we can to make sure that they have safe haven here and to kind of, you know, get a fresh start if they need to, or at least find this place where they're safe and secure until they are able to return home. So there's a lot of moving pieces again, um, but just having full faith in, in our Minister of Defense um, and the incredible leaders um, at DND, I feel good. Um, we also have the luxury of having CFB Gagetown in our riding. Um, so I have access to some of the greatest minds, yeah. uh, the greatest leaders uh, in our in our army in particular. Um, and so I think we're doing what we, we need to be doing. We're doing what we're being asked to do. Um, and we'll see moving forward just kind of the role that NATO will take on. This question is purely provincial, but well, we all have an opinion on it. It's the Higgs's government plan to fix French immersion, per se, or eliminate <laughs> it. I went to the meeting here in St. John last week. It, it was heated, to say the least. I see you went to the one in Fredericton. So... Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on the plan? I think that it's being rushed. Um, I think that the education system is in no way ready to handle this kind of sweeping change. Uh, I think teachers in particular are just sick of the policy flip-flopping, having to adapt constantly. Um, we're also still recovering from, from COVID-19 and, and the kind of the closures of schools. Kiddos are already trying to catch up. Um, we also know our numbers of, of students with complex challenges, our personalized learning plans. Um, all of these things need to be taken into consideration. And what's being proposed is this 50%, 50%, so English and French, where I think it, there was a, an excellent teacher who spoke here at the Fredericton um, consultation, where the way she put it was, right now in New Brunswick, 40% of parents have chosen to put their children in a, in a French immersion program. It's, it's great that we have access to something yeah. like that. Then the other 60% have not chosen. They, they've chosen the, the English crime system, um, which they're entitled to do as well. This is what's great about New Brunswick. You have a choice. Um, so I really feel what's what's happening here is, first of all, the choice is being taken away, which we know we don't like that. 
Um, but what's effectively happening is now those 40% who signed up for immersion are not getting access to immersion. And the 60% that signed up for no French are, are being forced into 50% French. So effectively, 100% of parents are not going to be satisfied. So I, I don't I don't know really what the, the full motivation of this is, because we also haven't been shown the data. We haven't been shown um, you know, the numbers that, that describe why this is so necessary. So that would be my other big issue is please, please tell us why this was something that had to be done and why it's something that needs to be done for September. Um, so I, I would, you know, echo what I've been hearing from a lot of educators and parents and concerned community members who just pause, pause before we can have a better understanding of why. Um, but I would personally also like to just see as a beef up our existing immersion program, more FTE positions, uh, more supports, more resources. That's always what teachers have been asking for, and we're not listening to them. And and they're the experts. When when I think data in the Hayes government, I think of the Dominic Carity line, "Data my app." Yeah. Yes, it's a classic line from Dominic. It will be so, forever in our history. Next, I, I want to talk about. <laughs> um. A question I like to ask every person I interview is reforming the electoral system away from first past the post into something more proportional representative of the voting population. What do you think about changing the way that we vote? I've always been a supporter um, of electoral reform. Uh, okay. First of all, I really support just a citizens assembly in general to get an idea of what would be best for us. Um, there's a lot of support in particular for proportional representation. Mm -hmm. um, I think perhaps it would also be something that would have seen more Green Party members elected in 2019, for example, which might have changed the trajectory <laughs> of, of, of my history as well. Um, but it's also something that, you know, it was it was studied in 2019. There was a committee and I guess they decided that it wasn't something we should be looking at anymore. So the political will has certainly changed, um, which is really frustrating for a lot of people, especially those that originally supported, um, you know, the Trudeau Liberals in 2015 on that issue specifically. So I, I think what's, it's worth it to at least drum up the conversation again. Um, and and perhaps it would also have dealt with a lot of the, the dissatisfaction that we're seeing right now, a lot of the division. Um, so I've, I'm always open to the, that kind of a discussion because um, I think it comes down to, again, that every vote should count. Um, but also we should be able to to not necessarily have to focus on the, the vote splitting. You should be able to vote for who you want to vote for, um, the person that you connect with the most, not necessarily the party itself. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of changes that we, we should be open to, but sadly, I, I think that the door is closing. Um, so it's up to the community members. It's up to our citizenship to say, hey, let's talk about this again. Personally, I do think that first press the post is a little outdated and not the best phony system in the world, but that's just my opinion. I'm just <laughs> one of many. A lot of people would agree with you. <laughs> um. The, I see the, the Prime Minister is having a First Minister meeting, I believe, next week, I think the 7th, with all the premiers about health care. The health care system, especially here in New Brunswick, is a joke, collapsing, that many words you can use for it. What, that, what needs to be done to the health care system to make it work for everybody, once again? Well, that's a great question. Um, and certainly what I'm hearing at every single door I knock on, this is the number one priority for everyone in our community, mm -hmm. as it should be. Um, and again, it comes back to similarly to what I said about education. You need to listen to the people who are on the front lines who have that expertise, which is the nurses, the doctors, the LPNs, uh, you know, anyone who's involved in the administration of healthcare. 
they have been telling us what what was needed for a long time now and they have been ignored um, so a lot of it is about conditions of work people want a work-life balance which i think they are entitled to um, they need to be better compensated so we're losing out to other jurisdictions where nurses for example are being paid more in nova scotia or maine um, we need to value them. We need to ensure it's a safe working environment. So that's that's one piece is to focus on the workers themselves. Um, the other piece is, again, tracking our system better. I've been hearing a ton about, again, a lack of data. Um, and in 2023, that's quite shocking. So we, sh we should have been able to project this cliff that we were approaching as far as the human services issues that, you know, a lack of, of people, the mass retirement that we're seeing. All of this should have been predictable. We should have been planning and strategizing how to deal with it for quite some time. So that's another piece of it. Uh, and then, of course, funding. I've always been supportive of an increase to the health transfer. Um, I know that provinces and territories have been increasingly spending more and more. They want more support from the federal government. Um, and I know that the government's open to that. Just this year, for example, it's already set to go up by 9.1% in the following year, 6%. And those are big numbers. Yeah. Um, so we also, though, need to have some of those standards. We need to ensure that no matter where you are in Canada, you're going to have access to things like mental health support as well, which has been long forgotten, um, not even included in discussions, for example, here in New Brunswick in health. It's in social development. So those are the things we need to see change. Um, and the role of the federal government is to ensure that those standards exist, that the Canada Health Act is enforced, and that provinces and territories have the, the resources that they need to deliver the service. Um, so it's, I'm hoping February 7th we come out with a, with a deal, um, because I'm really thinking that Canadians are, are losing their patience as far as the discussions that are ongoing. We need actions now. Yeah, um, yeah. And again, it comes into play with our immigration targets. You know, we're trying to bring newcomers here. They're not going to have access to family doctors or to surgeries or to any of the issues, you know, that we need to see physicians or, or nurses for. So that's a big part of it. Um, I've also heard of a creative solution that I think would help um, because we know we need to have more, you know, seats open for, for colleges, for, for physicians and nurses. Mm -hmm. But the other side of it is, is, is additional support staff. So um, physicians assistants, for example, we only have three in the entire province of New Brunswick. Um, where Manitoba, Ontario, they're, they're, they're using them in, in a really important way. And from what I'm told, that can divert a one-third of what's happening in the ER. So that right away would alleviate some of the pressures that we're seeing, and that's a two-year program. So we also have to think we can't necessarily graduate a doctor, you know, in, in the next couple of months when everybody needs that primary care physician, but we can get a physician's assistant in two years. Mm -hmm. um, actually, and many are drawn from, from uh, ex-military members, so retired veterans that already have that skill set. Um, to help, again, divert what's happening in, in our ERs. So I really hope that's something that will catch on or these other kind of creative, innovative ideas. Um, but really, we just need everyone to start talking. And I, I just don't want to see the finger pointing anymore from the province and the federal government. Let's just get this done. And, and people want results. You mentioned the immigration to Canada. The Atlantic provinces are growing at a rate that, uh, that has not happened in my lifetime. So New Brunswick had 800,000 people a few months ago, which seemed impossible 10 years ago. Does the government have plans to, keep, to bring it, to increase the immigration numbers, to bring in more people to Canada, especially here to the East Coast, which is the best place to live in the country? <laughs> I totally <Worldwide>. agree. <laughs> Um, and yes, I mean, for sure, we, we saw record high numbers um, over the last, over 2021 to 2022. Um, and there's, there's continuing to be really ambitious goals. Uh, and again, it, there's no wonder that we have to really focus on the Atlantic in particular, because we also have a high rate of, of, of baby boomers, for example, that are retiring mm -hmm. all at the same time. So we need that tax base. We also need labor. 
Um, we also need just to continue to enrich our communities, um, and which, you know, we, we love to, to welcome anyone who wants to come join our schools or, you know, just be part of our, uh, our life here in the Atlantic. So it's definitely a, a big piece of the plan. I think something we should also focus on is the is the francophone immigration target. So it was set at 4.4. Uh, we did reach that target, but it should be much higher. Again, specifically here in the Atlantic, particularly in New Brunswick. Yeah, um, yeah. So there's lots of ways we can we can kind of tinker with our targets and make sure that they fit our needs here. But um, there's certainly ambitious goals. And I, I have to give a shout out to my my friend and colleague, Minister Sean Frazier. Um, it's nice to have an Atlantic immigration <laughs> minister because he understands those issues, but he's also he's so dedicated on, on fixing the issues. Um, so speeding up wait times, really focusing on things like family reunification, focusing on healthcare sector, you know, recruitment there, on construction as well. So he's been really targeted and, and strategic with where he's making those changes, um, beefing up IRCC, uh, you know, positions for, for call lines for help for us here in, in our MP offices. So it's been nice to see that because we haven't always had that kind of same rigor in the IRCC department, but Minister Frazier really brings it. My final question to you is, what does the future hold for you? Are, are you going to run in the next election? And I am absolutely going to run in the next election. I have a lot of work to do because <laughs> <laughs> um, I've had two elections in, what, three and a half years. So I, I'm not shy to an election for sure. But um, yeah, I mean... I always wanted someone to represent Fredericton that to do the work, and that's why I wanted to run. And so uh, I feel like it's been an incredible journey. I have an amazing team, and we're not going anywhere. <laughs> do you have anything you would want to you want to say to the people listening? Oh, I mean, I just I hope that they continue to be kind of interested in this journey. Um, I've, I've never been someone who does something kind of the traditional way. At least I keep it spicy, which I hope that they enjoy. <laughs> um, but just to know that. I do this work because my heart's in it. I, I love people. Um, I even love the tough conversations when I can tell there's not a hope in hell they're going to vote for me, you know, but I want to understand what their challenges are. I really want to listen. I want to be there to support our community members. And so that's really the message I hope gets across more than anything. Um, so, yeah, who knows how long this journey is going to last. But while I'm here, we're going to work really hard and make sure we're responsive to the needs of our, our community members. Too. Well, Jenica, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to do this interview with me. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for doing it. It's, these have been fun. Doing interviews are fun. <laughs> Great. <laughs> okay, thank you. Awesome. Well, have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. <laughs>